All right, guys. Well, once again, if you don't have your Bible out or you haven't loaded it up up on your phone, I would encourage you to, to join me in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. While you guys are doing that, I'm going to go ahead and just get started. I'm sure you wouldn't mind with that. Um, I believe I've shared this story uh, before from the pulpit, but in the closing scenes of Christopher Nolan's uh, Batman, who is played by Christian Bale, in this one scene uh, he is shown uh, saying that it is not who I am, but what I do that defines me. And after he says that, he leaps off of the building and inevitably saves Gotham City. If we're honest, this is often a quote or an expression or even a philosophy that we live our daily lives by. Our identity isn't just thrown out the window, but most of the time we tend to not operate out of it at all because we want our activity to speak for itself. We can see that throughout the pages of this week uh, as people respond in fear or panic, concern or apathy even a lack of compassion. The truth is that our identity ought to inform our activity. And I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't uh, use precaution during this time. I'm not saying that we should not demonstrate compassion and mercy. In fact, we should be uh, practicing compassion and mercy. But the Bible essentially does not begin with a matter of uh, identity, or excuse me let, me, let me back up. The Bible actually begins with a matter of identity and not activity. Specifically, we could say it this way, that it is who God says we are that determines what we do. And that would be the main idea for our time. Every Sunday, I try to give you uh, uh, the main idea for our time, and that's what it would be. Who you are in Christ determines what you do. In today's passage, John is going to walk us through our gospel identity before he elaborates and defines our gospel activity. And so earlier, Luis read through uh, the whole 10 verses. I just want to read through the first three, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive into the remainder of our time. And so this is what God says through John. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but, what, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray. God, as we dive into this time together, Lord, my prayer is that you would be glorified. Everyone finds themselves in the similar season or in the same season. And so, God, as a result, would your work be magnified in and through the church? In this time, as we gather uh, for worship in our homes, um, may you continue to call us and draw us closer to you so that we would be more like Jesus in this season. God, those who, who know Jesus, I pray that they would come to know Jesus better this morning. Those who don't know Jesus and are, and are hanging out at someone's home, I pray that they would come to know Jesus today. 
I pray that they would come to know Jesus and essentially receive sonship. God, I pray that I would be set aside. Holy Spirit, that it would be you at work. And especially because of the season we find ourselves in, may we be drawn closer, deeper, and be grounded in the promises of your word and most certainly in the person and work of Jesus. So God, we thank you for this opportunity to worship, even if it is digitally or virtually. And we praise your name. Uh, Amen. So the first thing that I want to do is I want to tackle the first three verses because I think they're incredibly important. And so over the last few weeks, John has dropped some heavy theology and has also provided some much needed pastoral care and encouragement. This week, it seems to be a little bit of both, and he's writing against Gnostics. Now, we've talked about this group of individuals over the past couple of weeks, and so he's writing against Gnostics. He's encouraging the church. He's pressing into them with the gospel, and he's writing against Gnostics who believe that an individual can be saved through knowledge. And as a result of their belief, they would assume that their knowledge has either made them perfect and without sin, or that sin does not matter or exists, and so therefore they deny the gravity of sin. John continues to address the church, and he begins with their and our identity. And what I want you to notice in these first three verses, I want you to take notice of three truths within identity. I'm going to walk through them, and then we're going to expand on them. And so the first one is that identity involves sonship. The second one is identity includes hope. And then finally, that identity leads to obedience. And so let's walk through each one briefly. When it comes to identity involving sonship, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, really this quote from a book. It's called Dear Son, and it's written by Dave Bruscus. And what he writes is that one of the first identities that a child has is that of a son or a daughter. However, that identity is cultivated and assured in that child by how the father loves that child. And that's the first thing that John has us place our attention on. He opens up by saying, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That statement alone unpacks a great deal of encouraging truths to us. That is that the Father has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live in our place, to die, or excuse me, to live the life that you and I cannot live, to die in our place for our sin and reconciles us to the Father. That is, he brings us into relationship with the Father so that you and I would receive sonship. And that's very specific and very intentional, that you and I would receive sonship. You and I did not achieve it but received it through what the Father has done for us in Christ. The next thing I want you to notice is that identity involves hope. John goes on to say in this section, 
He goes on to say, beloved, we are God's children now. He's using present tense language. In other words, he's not saying that things need to happen in order for you to become a son at some point. He is addressing the church as God's children in the present tense. He is saying you are God's children now. And as a result, your identity includes hope. That is certainty. It's not the kind of Western thinking about hope where uh, it's wishful thinking and, and you hope that things go well. This is a certain, actual, factual type of statement. And that statement that John is ultimately alluding to is that one day Jesus will return to reclaim his bride, the church, and that we will live ultimately in his presence. This is what happens for the children of God. And so he's not only reminding us of what God has done for us in Christ, he is also assuring us of the hope that is to come because we belong to Jesus. And then finally, identity leads to obedience. He closes this section by saying, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Purification, at the end of the day, means a couple of things. Number one, it means being more like Jesus, being made more like Jesus. And number two, purification leads to us, uh, let me say it this way, purification leads to a genuine faith. I want you to look to the words of Peter. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what Peter is saying. That when you are going to test the genuineness of gold, the way you do it is by placing it in fire. And when you place it in fire, what's going to happen is that the fire and the heat is going to burn off all the excess minerals in order to see that this piece of gold is genuine. For us, what that means is that in trials, we are being tested for the genuineness of our faith. In addition to that, you and I are being sanctified in those trials where these mineral deposits are burning off of us. Purification leads to obedience, but you and I obey, not so that God would love us, but because God already loves us and has demonstrated that love for us in sending Jesus to die on a cross for sinners. Identity involves, or excuse me, identity begins with sonship. It involves hope, and it leads to obedience. In the season that we're all in, this is a beautiful truth that we can find ourselves anchored in. Because if you think about it, John still hasn't gotten to activity. He hasn't expanded on what that means, how it's defined, and what it looks like. Right now, he is just spending time reminding you and me of our identity in Christ. And he does so by showing us what the Father has done for us. He does so by assuring us 
of hope and the certainty that comes with it. And he does so by talking about obedience. And one last thing when it comes to obedience, when he closes, he says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure, that's present tense. That means our obedience to God in Christ, our pursuit, check it, our pursuit of purification begins now. In light of what God has done for us, in light of Jesus' return, obedience and purification and the pursuit of holiness begins now. Not tomorrow, not the next day. It begins now, Christian. In this same section, he goes on to say, I think it's in the second part, or the second verse, he says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Christians are going to be rejected because they first reject God. Or because people or the world rejects God first. In light of that, we are called to purification for the sake of genuineness in our faith. This entire summary of what involves our identity inevitably leads to our activity. And so in the next three verses, or in the following verses, what John is going to do is he's going to begin to walk us through gospel activity, but before he tells us what that is or or what to do, he tells us what it is. In other words, he defines it, and he defines it uh, in order to distinguish it from activity from those who don't know Jesus. We could say it this way, that, that John distinguishes gospel activity from worldly activity by presenting us with the nature and origin of sin in contrast to the work of Christ for sinners. And so much like the last section, I'm going to give you three things and then we're going to expand on each one of them. We're going to look at the nature of sin. We're going to look at the work of Christ and then the implication for the Christian. And and when we talk about implication, we're not just talking about practical application. We're talking about a heart check. We'll get to the practical later on this morning. And so let's go back up to the nature of sin. The first thing that John does in this section, and I want you to notice a couple of things, because he does something similar in chapter one. It's almost like he's writing these uh, line drawn in the sand statements. And to an extent, he is. Like he is making some pretty bold statements. And we're going to talk about them in just a minute when it pertains to our implications. But one of the things I want you to notice first is that how John defines sin. And John defines sin by saying that it is lawlessness. Now, that's not a very impressive definition. In fact, it's kind of a superficial definition, but it is actually quite accurate to what sin is. You see, oftentimes you and I might view sin as just not doing the things we shouldn't do. And what John means when he writes lawlessness is that it's not only, for instance, breaking the law or breaking rules. It is deliberate rebellion against God. There's some gravity to the word lawlessness. Again, it's not just going against the rules or being a a rebel because you don't like a certain set of rules or guides, whatever that looks like. What John is saying is this is deliberate rebellion against God. 
he then equates it to the origin of sin. He goes on to say that the origin of sin resides with Satan. That sin is actually a part of his identity, that it is a part of his character. And in an effort to expand on what Satan does so that you and I have a clear picture of what he does, I actually want you to listen to a pastor named John Stott. And this is what he says concerning the origin or the works of Satan. John Stott writes, Morally, his work is enticement to sin. Physically, it's the infliction of disease. Intellectually, seduction to error. He still assaults our soul, body, and mind in these three ways. And Christ came to destroy his works. John presents us with the nature and origin of sin. Again, the nature of sin, it's not just breaking rules. It's deliberate rebellion against God. And then when he talks about the, the origin of sin and he begins to expand on who Satan is, and as we looked at what John Stott said about his works, essentially what John is doing is he is setting the argument on the table concerning the works of Satan and what sin is. And the truth is that that kind of character, that kind of, uh, uh, I guess, sinful behavior, like that's who we are apart from Christ, that we are opposed to God, that we are at war with God, and that we are estranged from God. Elsewhere in this same section, John goes on to say that if you respond this way or you are living in this way, you are actually of the devil. But God, in his mercy, and kindness sent his son to save sinners. And so John contrasts the nature and origin of sin with the work of Christ. And he does so by giving us two reasons. Like he's going to contrast the nature and, and, and origin of sin by giving us two things that Christ did. Now those two things, again, when you read them, they're very plain. But they have huge a huge impact on you and I. And so the first thing that John says is that Jesus appeared to take away sins. Now that statement is pretty heavy because appearing doesn't just mean that Jesus showed up. In fact, even if he just showed up, even if he was just a good teacher, even if he's just moral, that would have been enough, but he doesn't just show up. In fact, he keeps going. In the Gospel of John, he says that Jesus dwelled among us. He goes on to say that Jesus lived without sin. And as a result of living without sin, that he died for us on the cross. That with his blood, he purchased not only our sin, but forgiveness. On the cross, Jesus reconciles us to the Father. That he brings us into a relationship with the Father because our sins have been forgiven. Appearing doesn't just mean Jesus showed up. It means way, way more. And in addition to that, John goes on to say that the reason he appeared once again is to destroy the works of Satan. I mean, if you think about it, the, the work of Christ on the cross meant a great deal. That is, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. That is, he bore our sin, all of our unrighteousness. He bore it, and in exchange, this is called the great exchange, that as he bore our sin and our unrighteousness, he then imputes, gives, implants, whatever word you'd like to use, he gives us his righteousness. 
And as a result of giving us His righteousness, the Holy Spirit then abides in the Christian. Now the reason that's so important, the reason that is so important is because on the cross, not only did Jesus forgive us from sin, Jesus also freed us from the power of sin and the tyranny of Satan. On the cross, because of what Jesus has done for sinners, we are no longer slaves, but sons and daughters. What this means for you, Christian, is that you have the power, because of the Holy Spirit abiding in you, you have the power to say no to sin. You have the power to reject Satan, his works, and effects. That you are no longer in his rule. Yes, the presence of sin still exists, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. The presence of sin still exists. But are you forgiven from your sin? Absolutely. Do you have the power to say no to sin and the power to say no to the tyranny of Satan? Absolutely. Why? Because Jesus has bore your sin, forgiven you of your sin, given you His righteousness, and the Holy Spirit abides in you. Inevitably, that leads us to the implications I was telling you about earlier. John kind of walks through two implications. It's all within that, the verses 4 and 7. He goes on to say that we practice righteousness because Jesus is righteous. And so I'm going to walk through that one briefly because I'm going to talk about it again in just a minute. In this section, one of the things that John says Excuse me, one of the things that John says is, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. One of the things that John is talking about as it pertains to God's seed, it is that uh, because of his spirit, his word and his character abides in us. Therefore, you and I can practice righteousness. We can practice righteousness. Now, here's what he's not saying. He is not saying that the Christian is sinless. But he is saying that the Christian sins less. That is what John is saying. I'll say it one more time. Right? He is not saying that the Christian is sinless. He is, however, saying that the Christian sins less. And the reason the Christian sins less is because the Spirit of God abides in them and the righteousness that they walk in does not belong to them. It is the result of what God has done for them in Christ. The second thing, in light of righteousness, even if we look at that verse where he says, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has uh, been born of God. So he's talking about a new nature there. He's talking about that the Christian can practice righteousness, not only because it has been given to the Christian, but because the Christian has received a new heart and their mind has been renewed as a result of the Holy Spirit abiding in them. Now, when he uses the word practicing, he uses it over and over. For instance, he goes on to say, whoever makes the practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. When he uses the word practice, he is referring to a lifestyle. He is referring to specifically habitual sin. You and I are going to fall. We're going to have those moments where we just jack it all up. What John is addressing here, uh, when he uses the word practicing, he is addressing a lifestyle that goes without repentance and without fruit. 
The truth is that statements like that, those drawn in the sand statements, ought to gut check us, or excuse me, they ought to heart check us. That if we really do know Jesus, we have a hatred for our sin, that we don't tolerate our sin, that there actually is repentance. And elsewhere in Matthew, Jesus says to bear fruit that goes or that keeps with repentance. That stuff is actually happening. We are being transformed and being made more into the image of Jesus as the result of the Spirit abiding in us and us repenting. For the person who practices, in the context that John is writing, for the person who practices sin, he is referring to habitual sin. Sin that goes left unchecked. Sin that lacks repentance. Sin that is in complete rebellion to God. Some of you need that heart check this morning. Some of you need that heart check because even in hearing that, you want to justify your sin. Some of you need that heart check this morning because you're thinking about someone, but the Spirit is addressing you. Some of you need that heart check because God is calling you to Himself. And it begins with, repentance. Again, those verses are are scary because they force you and I to examine the condition of our hearts. In fact, I want you to listen to the Apostle Paul. This is 2 Corinthians 13, 5. This is what Paul says. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? You cannot have an encounter with the risen Christ and not be transformed. Some Christians, or some, I should say, some individuals, view the work of Christ as simply a convenience. He's died for me, I'm good to go. But obviously, that is not consistent with the teachings of Scripture. That as a result of what God has done for us in Christ, we are seeking transformation and purification. That we obey not so that God would love us, but because He has loved us. There's a big difference there. The scary part is that many, and this you might be one of them, The scary part is that many believe they're Christians and they're not. And so if that bugs you, if that bothers you, good. That's exactly what John is saying here. That's exactly what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians. It's a heart check. Therefore, you and I ought to examine ourselves, to test ourselves. This is the hard part. This is where we invite others to speak into our life. And the most dangerous response when someone speaks into our life is, I know. Or generalizing sin because, well, everybody sins. Everybody struggles with this thing. We're not talking about everyone, and we're not talking about everyone else's struggles. We're talking about you. I think oftentimes when we begin to talk about righteousness, we want it focused on ourselves But the truth is, even the righteousness that we walk in does not belong to us. It belongs to Jesus. So if we want to talk about about ourselves, that's fine. 
The Bible says we can do that as we address our sin. So let's do that. Moving on to the last couple of verses. John says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Over the last couple of chapters, John has presented us, he has presented the church with tests. Early on, he presented us with a doctrinal test. That's in chapter 1. He has presented us with a test of morality. And now he is presenting us with a social test. And the test involves love. And so, what I want you to know regarding these last couple of verses is, number one, to summarize everything, it's that gospel identity begins with sonship. Gospel activity is defined by abiding in Christ And gospel activity is then practiced in righteousness. Here's here's the practical application. Many of you, I'm sure, have your, your journals out and your pencils ready to go. And so the practical application involves a test of love. That is, a love for God. That is how we practice righteousness. And a love for one another. That is, if God has not only saved us, he has also changed our nature by giving us a new heart and renewing our minds so that we would love not only our neighbor, but one another. And so he gives us two things. He says to practice righteousness and to love one another. By those things, we will see, I suppose, where your allegiance lies. Again, we are not naturally righteous. The righteousness that we obtain or the the, the righteousness that we walk in is one, or the one that we possess is what some call an alien righteousness. That is, that it was given to us by Christ on the cross as he bore our sin. We could say it this way, that he paid for our debt with his credit. And so the righteousness that you and I walk in is not because we're awesome, but because Jesus is awesome and he has imputed this righteousness upon those who trust in him. So what does it look like to walk in righteousness? I'm going to give you a couple of things. The first thing that it looks like is walking in humility. C.S. Lewis says that that humility can be defined uh, as not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Paul in Philippians 2 goes on to say to consider others as more important or significant than yourselves. Humility is the opposite of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is really rooted in pride. Self-righteousness is rooted in performance and achievement self-righteousness is really just another way of saying i'm better than you now many of us may not necessarily articulate it that way but our actions demonstrate something different if you and i are going to practice righteousness we are going to walk in humility and because we walk in humility the next thing that involves practicing righteousness is obedience to god We've already looked at purification. We talked a little bit about obedience, that we obey God not so that he would love us, but because he has already loved us in Christ. 
That is why we obey. Peter says it this way, as obedient children, do not be conformed to your former ways. He's saying, as the result of your identity, obey. Walking in righteousness ultimately means living out our faith, not just among one another, but in particular around those who don't know Jesus. And in this season, when the incubator and the church doors are closed, in this season where we're not having these mass gatherings, in this season, what is left is the life and character of the church. And so how will you and I walk in righteousness in an effort to meet the needs of others, not just so that their physical needs would be met, but so that they would come to know, hopefully come to know Jesus? What would it look like for us to actually minister to students who depend on those lunches and breakfasts right now? How would it look like to minister to teachers who are tired and didn't and won't have a spring break? What about parents who are uncertain right now because online learning intimidates them or maybe because they weren't ready for some of these rhythms and even though everyone else is adjusting, how can we as the church be on the front line to meet the needs of our neighbor and community so that we would demonstrate compassion, demonstrate mercy, and proclaim Jesus to people who don't know him, to people who are vulnerable, to people who are serving and don't get the days off. Some of you might be thinking, well, we need to care for the church, and that's absolutely true. That's the next point that John talks about. Right now, we're talking about practicing righteousness in our context for the purpose of people knowing Jesus. There are no programs. The doors are closed. The gatherings have been suspended. All that is left right now is the life and character of the church. The proclamation of individuals, the hands and feet that are moving throughout our neighborhood. That is how we demonstrate righteousness. And the righteousness that we demonstrate is not one of our own. The next thing that John says is to love one another. Yeah, absolutely. How do we serve one another right now? Taking each other groceries, praying for one another. Eric was talking about prayer partners a while ago, following up with one another, checking in with one another, whether it's phone call or FaceTime or text asking, how are you doing this week? How can I pray for you? Encouraging one another throughout the same thing. Not just in living out righteousness, But in in loving one another, in this season, the church should not hide. In fact, the church should shine. She should be salt and light in this time, certainly to one another. But in particular, or especially to those who don't know Jesus. People are watching. I think because Christians talk a great deal. And now we're presented with unique and creative opportunities to proclaim the gospel and to practice compassion and mercy. If you think about it, in this season, idols, if they haven't already, are going to surface. From my understanding, because I don't watch them, sports have been canceled. Schools are shut down. So when it comes to sports, some of you are crazy fanatics. Some of you live and die sports. 
Well, we're going to see that idle surface. Schools are shut down. We're going to see the idol of achievement and even education. And again, idols don't always necessarily have to be bad things. It could even be when a good thing becomes the main thing, the only thing. Essentially, whatever rules your heart. So it might be achievement and education. It might even be the way you parent. So one of the things we were talking about this week is how some parents might struggle with online education and maybe now homeschooling their kids. Those of you who do homeschool your kids, don't be self-righteous in saying, I told you this is the way you should do it. In fact, you should help those parents who are freaking out. Additionally, Idols like vanity are going to surface. Now, we're going to see this within our nation, but I'm also not addressing our nation. I'm addressing Storehouse McAllen. These idols are going to begin with us. We're going, to be, we're going to see very quickly what has been competing for our hearts. And so the question is, how will we respond to one another and those around us in this season? As we walk into a season of purification, how will we respond to one another, to the work of God in Christ for us, and to those around us? Christian, you belong to God. And you belong to God because of Jesus. Therefore, examine yourself. Please do not delay. Examine your heart. Repent of your sin and respond to God's grace with the righteousness that has been implanted in you. If you don't know Jesus, number one, thanks for hanging out and worshiping with us. Really glad that you're here, even if it's virtually. You can come to know Jesus today. You can come to know Jesus today. Jesus is absolutely ready to pardon all who turn to him in repentance and belief. And you know what you get? You receive sonship. You receive hope. You receive a new heart. You receive a new mind. He calls you to repent of your sin and invites you to come to know him today. Don't delay. Don't wait. You got questions? Let's answer them. But don't wait on repentance. Turn to Christ. Trust in him. Receive sonship. Be assured of hope. And receive a new nature. Who you are, church, determines what you do. In this time, I just want to encourage us to, to surrender ourselves before God as you're in your living room or your apartment or wherever you guys are watching this. Man, I just want to encourage us to surrender ourselves before God this morning and I want us to respond to His Word and Spirit in two ways. In prayer, in confession, and through song. Join me as I pray. God, as we come before you in prayer, Lord, if, if, if worship is where we give you our soul and, and uh, the preached word is where we give you our mind, this is where we give you our sin. 
God, my prayer is that whether we're meeting here at the incubator or we're meeting uh, in, in our homes, at our friends' houses, wherever it is, that we would not waste this time. God, many of us, if not all of us, need to be reminded of our identity. Especially in this season when it's just like, go, 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 and at the same time, uh, we're being told to slow down and simplify things. Sometimes it gets a little chaotic. Sometimes it gets a little bit overwhelming. And if we're honest, we don't necessarily always know how to adjust. But right now, you call us to yourself in an effort to remind us of who we are because of what you have done for us in Christ. Right now, you create a space for us to confess and repent of our sin. This isn't the only space. This isn't the only time we ought to do this. But in this moment, we as the church gather to confess and repent of our sin. 